Like the mountain in the soil in the earth Breaking through the rocks Growing wild and tall Till the buds begin to pop Pack me in a bowl or roll me in a split Or you're breaking me down You can feel your Hey, this is Ryan Heron and Amanda Breeze, and we're here to talk about all the fun stuff about one of our favorite plants, cannabis. Uh, flavor, aroma, effects, stuff that's happening in the industry, in Canada and the United States, we're trying to cover it all. So if cannabis is one of your favorite plants too, sit down, join us in this little smoking spot we've cultivated, and uh, hey, let's, let's chat. So how's it going, Amanda? Super good. Um, nice. Things are good. Things can also be very bad, you know. Um, today I got a, a picture sent to me that some of my plants have balls. Oh, no. Are you going to separate them and put oh, them somewhere I, else? No, I'm going to kill them. They're going to go. Killing the studs. They're going to die. Yeah, but it's, you know, I planted them a couple months ago. Um, I keep four plants in my parents' backyard. Uh, they don't smoke, but they like the vibe. So those are like my little babies. And um, yeah, they're all males. All of them? Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. So I, I got a bunch of um, auto flowers, regs, just for like my back porch. Because um, full disclosure, actually growing weed is like way too much work for me. But I, like I said, it's a vibe. Like keeping it, like keeping on the back porch is great. Yeah. Uh, and these look great, and they're they're starting to flower already because we're kind of getting the end of summer, and they're taking on a bunch of color. They look really good. And uh, I've got one massive male plant out there, and I'm like, you know what? I'm not gonna really be smoking this weed. I don't have a lot of like plans for it so i'm like why don't, okay pollinate let's do this maybe i'll get some seeds for next year oh you're gonna keep it yeah i you know what i'm just gonna let it do its thing and see what that ends up being okay okay yeah. so you're like the bad neighbor mm -hmm. all other neighbors growing plants if all of my neighbors had a bunch of like sensimilia in their backyards i would not be the one pollinating their plants but seeing as like i'm the only one willing to put my like four plants on the back porch uh you know hey I'll stick with it that's what's up but yeah it's um you know I work on a, a farm so we have lots of of cannabis so same thing I don't really need it to smoke it's just I like having it around and knowing that it's there um you know since they legalized here it's been really fun that my parents are down because they were actually quite conservative when it came to cannabis before it was legalized um, and I just put them in their backyard and said, water them like tomatoes and they grow really nice wheat. So this is actually going to be a sad year for them because now we have to cut them all down and it happens. Wow. So you kind of took, uh, took a bit of a risk planting regs. Um, so if, if anyone is not listening, uh, or if anyone is not listening, anyone listening, right? Who's not totally sure how cannabis seeds are typically sold. Uh, there are regular seeds, which have the potential to be either female or male plants. Um, and then there's feminized seeds, which there's a very good chance all of those seeds, when you grow them out, will be females. So it's a little bit safer for folks who don't want their plants pollinated or don't want to have to like smoke some ropey males, which will not be so enjoyable. Yes, exactly. And I just I I just like to pull seeds from stuff that I have that I like. Yes. Um, you know, just pop the seeds. Plus you get to start your growing season, you know, just like whenever. So it's it was kind of nice to just 
have them, but this has never happened to me before. I've had one or two males in the past um, on bigger grows, but I've never had my little backyard set up completely overrun. So my little brother keeps texting me pictures and being like, is this a male? So this is, I guess, our friendly reminder to check your plants, folks, because this is the time where those little balls are going to start popping up and those you're going to have to decide what you're going to do with your babies keep them or snip them right um this is probably the longest i've ever grown out a male and it's uh like i said it's flowering at this point and it's really fun to watch you know like i i see a lot of uh female plants like in gardens and farms i mean that's that's primarily what what i'm exposed to every now and then someone will bring me to some little tent that they have where they have like one male plant that's like all studly and getting ready to like put pollen all over everything um and uh and so this is kind of fun to like watch the progress and see all the little like flowers stack and yeah it's, it's fun to watch oh my God. i gotta say this is like um a horror story for me hearing <laughs> that you're gonna let the male grow i'm like i'm dying a little bit inside because my greatest fear is accidentally pollinating the farm where we have you know over a hundred plants and we have had pollinator issues in the past yeah. with everything getting seeds and it is so depressing so this fear of males is like is strong it's um, ingrained yeah yeah i've like released the idea normally what we do if we find a male that we're like oh this one's stunning we want to keep it going is we'll cut a branch and stick it in water super far away from the like the grow itself yeah and put a little bit of tin foil underneath it and every day i'll just go and tap it and let the pollen fall and then we actually hand pollinate specific branches using that technique so in the end we do end up getting some seeds and being able to breed certain strains that look really nice but generally even when i'm tapping i want to go in like full hazmat because I'm like so scared of pollen. Yes, I, I mean with good reason too. Like, um, uh, especially indoor farms, right? You know, a, a lot of the cookies genetics and modern genetics is not super stable and tends to pop a hermaphroditic flower now and again, which can pollinate so much more of the room than you would ever expect, right? And uh, it, hey herb as a, as a commodity is something that needs to be sold. Um, seeded, seeded weed, especially indoor weed, um, is worth so much less. It's, it's yeah. really not enjoyable to smoke if you ask me. Um, and so it, it just, it ruins your weed. I mean, the seeds are great. And if you're, if you can hopefully sell those for 10 bucks a piece, because you're getting breeder prices, amazing. But usually when you accidentally pollinate a room, nobody, nobody's like clamoring for those seeds. Nobody wants it. Nobody wants to trim it. It's like a whole situation. Um, uh, where, where I work is actually outdoor. Um, and that was very upsetting. I think it was last year was the mold issue where I know mm -hmm. everyone who I know that was growing, you know, from the West Coast down here in Toronto, it was just like everyone got mold and we threw away so much. I've never seen the horror show like I saw last year. And I was hearing it from everyone. Just, there was just too much mold, too much moisture at the end of the growing season. 
Um, and now the year before was the seeds. So I was like, which freaking neighbor letting the males grow? And now I know. Now I know. Well, here in Oregon, it's gotten a little better, but several years ago, there was like the big hemp push, right? And everyone, mostly folks who had not been successful in the legal rec market were like, great, I'm going for hemp. Right. Uh, and a lot of people who were just speculating were like, OK, I've got this huge plot of land. I'm going to plant all this crazy amount of hemp and then it will be worth X millions of dollars. Uh, but it wasn't because no one took care of it. No one managed to, like, cull the males. And so we had, like, entire wild fields of hemp that were really no one was taking care of them. Wow. And, you know, that there there was crazy pollination issues there and surrounding for miles. Uh, and it was really sad because once these speculators realized there was no, no money in the situation, they just let the plants just sit in the ground. So you would drive by entire fields of hemp plants that were just like moldy and stunted and just sitting out there to rot. Um, really sad thing to see, but then also you think of the repercussions and it's like, oh guys, you, you screwed up way more than your own project here. That's really crazy to hear because I actually was I was working in California, um, I think in Southern California on a on a cannabis farm. And that was probably around the the year it legalized or the year before it legalized down there. Um, and so a lot of the the growers decided to make the shift to hemp. And so I witnessed this mass exodus of normal cannabis growers moving to Washington to grow hemp. And we were hearing all these rumors of like, oh, the money's going to be in hemp. You you don't even have to, you don't have to trim it. You just pull it out of the ground with the root ball and you yes. throw it in the truck and it gets processed. Like this is the future. We're all going to be growing hemp. And then within a couple of years, it was just like done. That boom came and went just like that. And, and then it was over. Right, right. And I have a feeling a lot of the like, really awful commodity like CBD products are likely still using like products that were produced during that time. Um, you know, I know so much like hemp distillate and things like that. We were seeing like gigantic plants like built to process this monster amount of hemp that was coming through. And uh, you just, like you said, you just don't hear too much about it anymore. Yeah. Just sort of came and went. I was I had a lot of people that I worked for in in Southern California that made that shift to Washington and then never to be heard from again. I think a lot of them ended up leaving the industry after investing, you know, their years of money in the black market into buying property and starting up massive grows in Washington, all for it to fall through. Um, yeah, that was sort of hard to watch. It's happening a little bit here too, you know, with the industry legalizing the timelines kind of add they kind of line up where it's been a few mm -hmm. years of the legal industry starting to boom and the boom was happening. And now it's everyone saying, Oh, we lost a billion dollars last year. And I just keep thinking, did no one see what happened when it in others in the States in California? Right? I mean, we're still doing it here. Like the East coast is totally just like where the West coast was five or six years ago. Yeah. where we're seeing all of these like medical champions come through and help push the laws through. Um, and then, you know, the corporate guys grab the baton and run with it and build out these monster facilities that really uh, can't be supported. Um, so, yeah, hey, I'm, I'm not trying to bum anyone out, 
what we should do is tell people why we're even here in the first place. Um, now this is great. Amanda and I are always uh, great at uh, just chatting cannabis. Um, I love that you're up in Canada and have worked enough in the States. You have a really nice point of view here. Um, so let's, let's just talk about our backgrounds, why we might be suited to talk about this. And um, yeah, then, then we can just kind of catch everyone up. Yeah. Well, hey, welcome to the podcast, everyone. Um, possibility of maybe you're watching this on YouTube as well. But um, yeah, me and Ryan are huge weed nerds. And I don't know about you, Ryan, but if there were two doors and in one room was full of weed and the other one was full of weed nerds, I would be lying to the nerds because I love talking about weed. So I'm really excited that we're finally putting this podcast together to talk about a plant that we love and all of the news and exciting things that are coming out of it. Um, like you said, I started out in the black market um, a little over a decade ago in California, in Humboldt County, and I just showed up on a farm. Uh, I heard you could get paid to live and work on a weed farm. And I just went and I have <laughs> never left the industry since, you know, weed kind of grows on trees and I, it's something that I love. So I, I love being in this industry um, and continuing to be in this industry. Beautiful. Um, and then something I, I really um, want to compliment um, Amanda about is uh, super curious and really forward looking as far as like flavor, aroma, effect and how we talk about cannabis. Um, so I, I think that uh, she's one of the best people you could connect with to to expand your knowledge on enjoying cannabis. Right. And then also um, just learning more about what this plant is and represents and how it affects us and the ways it affects us. All of that stuff is, is really important and why I'm happy to be having this conversation. Um, plus we know that the weed nerds all have good weed on them anyway. So <laughs> you're, you're not missing anything out by going on that, that door on the left. Um, yeah. And, and myself, you know, I'm, I'm here because uh, I have a similar love for the plant. Um, I started off in food production. I was a chocolate manufacturer. We would bring in beans and do all of the fun stuff to turn it into a chocolate. It's a real labor of love, AKA pain in the ass. So, um, you know, I was creating, talking a lot about food, doing chocolate tastings, writing a lot about food. And uh, then cannabis became something that was closer to being legalized. And I was able to say, hey, everyone, I like cannabis as much as I like chocolate. And you know what? There's not a crazy tasting wheel. And there's, there is a billion dollar industry behind chocolate that has figured out a way to talk about it and sell it. And even though it is a commodity, like find the real craft oriented folks and raise them on a pedestal and, and also support them with prices that kind of fit that amount of level to detail. Uh, so it was just a natural connection to go from food to talk about weed. And uh, man, I, I haven't left the industry yet. Food is in the rear view mirror and I've been working um, in cannabis since then. Um, doing a ton of stuff that we can get into later. I'm, I'm not trying to give anyone a resume right now, but but hey, we've been in the uh, in the industry for I would say ten years each, and so we've got a, a really nice background and view of where it's at now and where it's heading. So I think, hey, if you're a person that cares about these things, this is probably a conversation you want to listen into. 
Absolutely. And we have some secret plans and some secret projects that you and I have been working on um, that I'm excited to explore further through this podcast. Um, as you mentioned, aroma and flavor. I'm really excited to get deeper into that for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if you're one of those people that occasionally smokes weed and goes, great, this tastes like weed, I enjoy it. Stay tuned because in like a month, we're going to have you like listing off flavor notes and uh, talking about why you prefer, uh, I was going to say indicas over sativas, but really those are like outdated names or uh, what, what are we calling them? Well, we're, you know what, I think we're going to be getting into that a little bit today, actually, because a really big report just came out talking about indica and sativa. I I think, I think we can still use those words, but with almost like a little wink, wink, because we know it's, they sort of work. I've sort of switched to saying, um, relaxing or stimulating, just because they're more action words and that's sort of the vibe. If we're going to describe the vibe, it makes more sense than indica and sativa. But um, some interesting news has come out of the cannabis science world that I'm excited to discuss with you. Yeah. Um, well, hey, let's let's take just a quick break and let me get situated. Let me grab another cup of coffee and then let's dive into that article and really the whole concept of uh, why we should be talking about cannabis differently than we are now. Perfect. Okay, hey, we're back from our quick break. Um, clean out the ashtrays, and uh, I think we should be good. So tell me about this article, where I can find it if I want to read it. Okay, so this article came out um, in May. Um, So it's very, very recent, and it's called The Phytochemical Diversity of Commercial Cannabis in the United States. Had to read it right off the paper because I do not want to mess it up. I like it. You can find it online. It's completely available by PLOS1. And the entire article in all of its glory, um, it's 33 pages long. It is she thick. It's thick. Um, It took me a couple days to get through it, admittedly, because I wanted to take in all of the information. This study is absolutely groundbreaking. It's the first of its kind. And basically what it did is took almost 90,000 90,000 flower samples of cannabis across six legal states in the US and all of these samples were destined to to retail so these are all retail samples this these um this flower was on its way to dispensaries to be sold to consumers so We're talking about a massive volume of flour being tested that is specifically for consumers. And of this 90,000 samples, um, they tested all of them for their cannabinoid content. So they tested the CBD, THC, minor cannabinoids. Then they tested its terpene profiles. And then they compiled all of this data 
to see what the chemical diversity of retail cannabis looks like. Um, and in some ways, it's, it was positive uh, and a lot of new insights were discovered. And in some ways, uh, there were a few negatives that came out of it. You know, one being that there's an abundance of THC and CBD, but minor cannabinoids uh, seem to be uh, less present in, in cannabis right now. So that suggested to the researchers that the United States legal industry is more homogenous than it should be. Um, so there, that was, you know, we kind of know that, but it's nice to hear um, because there could be more diversity. And we know that a lot of craft and smaller grows aren't necessarily moving into the larger retail industry for a number of reasons. So that was kind of interesting. But the biggest breakthrough of this study was when they looked at the terpenes um, and how they decided to analyze the terpenes. And what they found um, was in the beginning, they took all of the dominant terpenes and they clustered them on this graph. And then they took what they're, they were labeled as and also included it in the graph. So if it was labeled as an indica or a sativa or a hybrid, and what should have happened is that um, groups should have formed where, oh, these primary terpenes here are obviously uh, labeled sativa. And so the sativa is going to line up with these terpenes. And this, this sample group was labeled indica. And so all of these terpenes should match and these clusters should form. But no, that is not what happened. It was completely intermingled, which is to say that a sample labeled sativa could be easily mistaken for an indica, could be a hybrid. And so what the study said is basically modern commercial labeling has nothing to do with the chemical composition of cannabis. So if you walk into a shop and it's labeled sativa, that sort of means shit. Um, because of all of these samples, nothing added up. So mm. that isn't a good look for the industry. It, it's really not. And, you know, it, it's... So many problems are being compounded here, right? For one, um, the industry is kind of being directed in um, the way where uh, consumers are asking for a specific thing. For the longest time, that has been THC percentage, right? Because many consumers understand that as I, uh, as like value, right? THC in their mind is the effect. So the higher percentage it is in the flower, the more effect they're going to get. Um, so they're going in and just simply asking for high THC flowers. Uh, we've seen that uh, become an issue here on the market where um, buyers are saying, look, I will not purchase any flower that is under 28% THC, which right. is already likely an inflated number to begin with. Uh, so then we see labs pushing to get things that are up in the 30s, and then none of that data can really be trusted at that point. Exactly. That's, that's not even touching on the fact that THC percentage is a really poor indicator for quality or value for your flower, right? Because like you said, the minor cannabinoids, even CBD and, and others um, are really heavily contributing to the effect. Uh, terpene percentage, even more so, right? All of these contributing factors to your experience cannot be measured simply with the uh, THC percentage of the flower. Right. So the more we see uh, consumers demanding that and buyers then saying like, well, okay, this is what my the people who are coming to my shop are requesting, uh, then we get stuck with this really kind of like one note flower 
that's just focused on THC or maybe CBD percentage, right? Absolutely. And this is some of the stuff that came out in the study. So um, what they found was that terpene diversity was actually being sacrificed for high THC, um, developing high, higher THC strains. So because we focused so much on what sells in the industry, which is these high THC strains, um, other things have been sacrificed for that. And that's also creating a more homogenous um, type of flower that we're seeing across the board. Um, and this includes CBD. So they noticed um, a very uh, serious decline in terpene diversity in CBD strains because wow. of such a heavy focus on high THC cannabis and developing those particular strains. So this has actually greatly impacted how the industry is growing cannabis. But similarly, because um, the cannabis industry wants to market to these consumers and what they're asking for, which is completely understandable, you know, you want to ask for what you want, but because they're, they're catering to this very specific thing um, that might be a little misguided, you know, maybe we want more terpenes instead of more THC to enhance those effects. Um, yeah, there's just across the board... Um, some general issues with the commercial cannabis and how it's being marketed. And so um, what they also found were that um, sativas and indicas uh, were often, more strains were labeled with certain labels than others, regardless of what the content was, because that's what the market wants. So if sativa is really popular this summer, you're going to see more labels saying that they're sativa so they can sell more cannabis. But again, it doesn't actually relate to what you're smoking. And so the marketing aspect of the industry has kind of is sort of not actually based on any of the chemical constituents in the cannabis itself. Um, so in a way that's sort of a positive for folks like us who are connoisseurs of the plant because now there's a greater need for our evaluations. Uh, people can't just rely on the packaging to understand what they're buying. Um, all of these bud tenders doing these amazing reviews of flour is super valuable knowing that this study came out saying, these labels are not adding up. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the, the market pressure to take something that is uh, really sedative, sedative, and call it something uplifting simply because buyers are saying, okay, hey, do you have anything that's a little bit more like Jack? And you really don't, but you're able to say like, oh, yeah, this uh, super silver blue dream is a sativa, if that's what you're looking for. Uh, great. Let's let's sell some of that. Uh, and it just kind of like uh, erodes the trust we have um, with the shops, with the buyers. And I, I understand it's mostly due to market pressures that things are being this mislabeled. Exactly. But also, I think people are taking... Uh, advantage of like an uneducated consumer base by just saying, this is what they seem to be asking for. So I'll seem to be selling them that, but really everyone kind of loses in that situation because no one's getting what they're specifically looking for. Exactly. And so, you know, the report sort of ends that little section by talking about how the greatest value to the consumer is having the dominant terpenes listed on the packaging, because that's really one of the only effective ways to determine the differences between different products. 
Now in this study, they also tested, um, so they tested indica sativa hybrid. It was bad. They were like, so this doesn't work for labeling. Let's test the strain names. So they had 41 different strains, five samples of each, all from different producers. Um, and what they found was that some strain names hold up. So when they looked at the chemical diversity of different strains, what you would think you would see is certain strains having the same thing happening and they're going to be clustering because they're the same. But that was not the case. Only some of them were. And so they did offer that strain names could be a better indicator of the product you're purchasing, which admittedly I was a little surprised by because as a blue dream girl, I never find Blue Dream here, have never found it, have never found authentic Blue Dream. Lots of packages labeled as such. Uh, yes. Actually being the product I'm looking for. And so I was I was pleasantly surprised to hear that actually, oh no, strain names could be a better indicator, but ultimately not ideal because not all strains were um, aligning in as far as their chemical diversity. Um, the ones that did were ones that were often clones. So something you would find as a clone versus starting it from seed, which makes sure. sense. Um, but how much are these producers doing trading with each other? I'm not sure, you know? Um, so that was an interesting find of the study as well. But really the biggest uh, outcome of the study was that when they looked, took a step back and just said, let's look at all the primary terpenes. Let's see if there's any co-occurrences or anything that stands out. What they found was that of these 90,000 samples, there were actually three groups that emerged of terpenes that are commonly co-occurring together. So hmm. potentially this could be the new indica sativa hybrid designation of the future is these pairs of terpene clusters that emerged from this study. Very nice. And have you found a terpene cluster that you yourself, you're like, that's, that's me. That's what I like. You know, I'm admittedly, so I'm going, I'm doing my, my science backend research right now. And I've been spending the past few days analyzing these terpene clusters from an aromatherapy perspective, which is my background and kind of, trying to understand what this means. Now, keeping in mind that one, yes, this is the largest study ever done on commercial cannabis ever. Like this is such a massive study, but it is isolated to commercial cannabis, which are going to be the big players and the big names. So like I said, we already know that there's, they're very homogenous. We don't have delicious craft grows or like different flavors coming from different smaller grows. We don't have these little breeders sort of being factored into this study, but this is a good study in that this is what U.S. consumers are buying. So this is why this clustering is important for folks to know, although it doesn't mean it's the new rule for all cannabis. I just want to make that clear, but the clusters are interesting. Um, I have my cheat sheet here. Oh, awesome. Cluster one is beta caryophyllene plus limonene. Okay, nice. Now that stands out to me as what? Because you would think of caryophyllene as being a more relaxing strain and limonene as being a more um, intense strain. And so those are kind of two weird ones to 
consider being considered a, to be a cluster. Yes. Although that's my wheelhouse right there, because that's going to cover uh, Gorilla Glue. I think most of the uh, chems are going to exist with like a high beta C limonene spike type profile. So uh, for me, when I hear that, I'm thinking um, these heavy hitters, these pronounced, um, you know, instant effect, instant head change. Um, so when I hear that, that's that's just what I think. Yeah. And what's interesting is when I took a step back and looked at it from um, like, what are these terpenes really doing? What I found was that the combination of those two actually creates a relaxing and antidepressant effect, plus a little anti-anxiety thrown in the mix. So the effects of these terpenes are actually pretty complementary and lovely together. So that makes sense. Um, so that was the first cluster. Very interesting. The second cluster was myrcene and pinene. Now, okay. unfortunately, yeah. what they did in this study is they combined the pinenes. Yeah. So it's in all of the research they did, alpha and beta pinene are considered the same thing. I personally would not have done that, but that's cool. So that's what we're working with. So this is the pinenes and myrcene combined together. Um. And then the third cluster was sort of the most interesting in my mind, which is terpinaline and myrcene. But that cluster was notably had a higher percentage of CBG. Oh, okay, great. The third sort of factor, which is, oh, I'm high in CBG. So that's That's interesting. So I know CBG as like the, the feel good compound molecule, right? Like, uh, I've, I've been able to sample CBG on its own a couple of times and it does not have a terrific head change. It's really rather light. I kind of put it in the like quarter glass of wine territory, right? Where it's a really nice way to start to unwind, right? Um, or start to to have a mood shift. Uh, and then I hear terpenaline and I just think Jack or Durban, right? Those kind of like sweet bubble gum, kind of uplifting flavors. Um, so when you say uplifting and kind of like calming or mood elevating, I'm like, great. The, that's what people who traditionally are looking for a sativa effect really do want. They don't, they want to like have more focus and less like tiredness or whatever. And I think that's, what's going to get you there. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I'm, um, I'm in deep right now working on some sort of graphs, some little Venn diagrams to explain what's happening here, because this is very exciting news for the cannabis community that they've been able to find these terpenes and isolate these three clusters. Um, And I had to do a deep dive into how the clustering works because that's, it's actually pretty crazy how K-means, it's called K-means clustering and how they determine where these clusters fell and what these specific center points were. I've just been, I've been swimming in all this information for days. Um, I like it. We need someone like you swimming in terpenes. Yeah, I'm just swimming in the terpenes. I'm swimming in the science of it all because like, wow, this this is a huge breakthrough, especially for us Terp nerds um, to hear from scientists, hey, list the primary terpenes, forget about all that other stuff. This is what counts the most. Um, so now, you know, it's our responsibility to continue to help consumers 
pick where they're what they're looking for and describe all these different strains and how these different new clusters can affect them. Right. So the MJ Biz Journal um, just had an article that was um, really kind of piggybacking on the same idea. And it was really saying that um, mislabeled cannabis is hurting the industry. Yes. Right. And it's, it's just the same thing. Like anytime you are um, disconnected from consumer expectations, um, you know, tr trust is lost. And so we're kind of getting to this point now in cannabis where uh, a lot of times what you're buying is a knockoff. Right. Someone purposely created this product, especially on the black market, um, to sell it and not exactly to explain to you what you're actually getting. Right. And so this is why we get a lot of the um, the heavily marketed like Mylar bags with cartoons on the front. Um, and I, so Amazon just put a ban on Mylar bags. You can no longer buy Mylar bags um, on Amazon if they have any kind of artwork or cartoons or anything on them. Um, because they were saying that it was becoming an issue, um, people were packaging illegal drugs in them, which is true, they were, um, but it's also making it so um, people without scruples are just buying runs bags on Amazon and putting right. whatever they can into it and then passing it off to you. Um, now, in, in this case, you might even see something like a dominant terpenes printed onto the package. Doesn't mean that that's true. It just means that's something that consumers are looking for, right? So they're going to fake it on their package. Um, so I, I really think the best thing you can do is find a, a good company that does align with you and is trying to present that correct information, right? Um, because the the kind of like mislabeling of things um has gotten to the point where it's it's no longer like oh we didn't know what we had so we just put this name on it it's like okay we knew what we had we put this other name on it because we could sell it or sell it for more right. um and like i said that that is just eroding trust throughout the industry um I, so i i'm lucky here in oregon we have more craft producers at least now the many of them are are being uh, pushed out of the market due to like the current climate. Um, but I found that uh, aligning with a farm who's going out of their way to source specific genetics is the best way to hopefully get your hands on those genetics, right? Absolutely. Um, so if you're just walking into a random uh, dispensary, just hoping to buy some nice products, you might not have that luxury because it's definitely something I've like cultivated here by searching the market, seeing who's out there, seeing who's really trying to like push the new stuff and uh, have tried it enough times that I go, you know what, anytime these guys release something, I, I feel like I trust where it came from. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, you know, things are a little crazy over the border here because we are so heavily regulated by the government. Um, and so here in Ontario, you can only buy legal weed through government approved stores and government approved brands, essentially. And so everything that's in store and legally available is generally big name companies who could afford the upfront costs of going through the process of legalizing with the government. Um, and you can't see 
the, the cannabis before you purchase it, um, we only have opaque packaging and we're not allowed to do fun packaging here either. So that's the other bummer is all of our packaging is quite based. It has to be very, very simple. No fun pictures, no nothing. Um, and so it's very hit or miss. So I rely very heavily on my friends who are bud tenders who have taken on uh, the roles of connoisseurs and sommeliers and who pay out of their own pocket to try all the different samples of weed so that they can recommend what's best um, in their experience. And, you know, those odd times that I purchase something, you know, as, as a cannabis sommelier myself, if I purchase something with listed terpenes and then I bring it home and those are not the terps that I'm smelling, I am immediately never purchasing from that uh, producer again. Like I'm it's pretty cut and dry for me. If I open your jar and I find powder mildew, you're done. We're not friends. We're not buying weed from you ever again. If I open your jar and the terps are completely off or the labels are off, being labeled as a blue dream when it's something else, you know, you're done. So I have like a, a ongoing shit list of, of brands <laughs> that I just will no longer purchase from after uh, one bad jar. Maybe that's harsh, but there's so many growers out there. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing more craft products moving into the legal industry here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I really hope so too. Like uh, consumers are demanding, right. And just like we've seen um, here in the United States in the twenties and thirties, uh, the coffee that was being so sold um, was oftentimes adulterated and ad the things were added to it and stuff that was not supposed to be in the coffee was getting added to the coffee um, because consumers weren't, weren't that picky about what they were brewing and because cost saving. And I, I kind of feel like we're in, in a similar spot now, um, at least in a lot of markets where they're just like, who cares what these consumers want? We're just going to sell them whatever we can sell them. Bottom line is the most important to consumers are educating themselves. They're, um, you know, reading 33 page reports or at least watching a podcast where someone can break it down for them yeah. And trying trying to get a better uh, a better product, or you know, just just smoke some good weed, right? I mean, that's that's one of the reasons like I go out of my way to find fine coffee or or fine bourbon or any of those things, like just for that sensory experience, right? That's important to me. Uh, so I think a lot of people um, who are in search of those things and are walking in and, and even saying that to the the bud tender or their plug, hey, this is exactly what I'm looking for, um, then it's more likely you will get those things or we're, we're on our way to providing more of those types of products uh, to consumers. Um, coming from a, a foodie background, I really expected um, foodies and people who care about these sensory experiences to embrace craft cannabis. Um, and it is happening so much more slowly than I ever would have expected uh, it turns out most people are just happy to just grab something that they can get from the dispensary and smoke it on their back patio and not have a long discussion like you would over a, let's say, $60 bottle of wine. Yeah. Um, but we're getting there, right? Like we're, we're definitely closer now than we were five or six years ago. But I feel like I am having to convince more people to care about what they're consuming uh, than I would have ever had expected to. You know, it's I, I completely agree. 
And I also find the opposite somewhat true, which is like the cannabis industry does is moving very quickly and people are trying to educate themselves quite quickly. So whereas five years ago, nobody knew what CBD was and it was this crazy thing that sure talking about. And then boom, now my mom, my grandma, everybody knows what CBD is, even people who don't smoke. And so now we're getting into the nuanced flavors, the nuances of aroma, and it is slowly coming together and slowly making this move into um, deciding where to go, where your money should go and what you want to purchase. And when it comes to wines and when it comes to coffees and these types of things, those industries have established that this $60 bottle, now I'm in Canada, so we're going to add a couple 20s to that because wine yeah. is here. By all um, means, yeah. You know, things are a little more costly on this side of the border, but that high-end bottle of wine has established itself as as earning its place as costing that that amount whereas here a $45 eighth or half quarter might not necessarily be it should maybe be more like $15. So it's still we're still trying to align our flavors and aromas and the cost of things as the industry is, you know, lifting itself up. So I always look forward to what's coming next. And so I'm just excited to see how the market reacts to this paper, which I've noticed in the past few weeks, more and more people are talking about on Instagram and through articles and blog posts. I've been seeing some momentum on this research that's been happening. And now I want to see it from the marketing side, from the big brands, the national brands, and see how they start to move into it. I mean, it was the smaller companies that started labeling their products with terpenes in the past year. Yeah, exactly. Right. So Which costs them more, right? It, it's, it costs more for the analysis. It costs more to print those onto your actual package. It's also, uh, it's a huge challenge for somebody who's printing packaging, who's likely ordering these things, minimum order quantities for, for packaging is typically like 10,000 units. And that's on the, the shorter end, right? So you're going to get 10,000 units. And so you can't print terpene percentages on those because that's going to change from batch to batch. So now you've come up with a solution that's printing off the terpene results per batch onto your labels. Like all of these are challenges. They're, they're not, it's not just like putting weed into a, a film canister and kicking it to somebody in front of the movie theater like it used to be. Um, and I don't really miss those days, but I, I, I do uh, recognize the unique challenges of trying to produce a craft product and put that out there and, and still like get really excited about it and still charge a price where you're not like eating it at the end of the day. Um, because things like quality nutrients can cost a lot. Things like hand trim weed does cost a lot, you know, and these are the, the kind of like indicators for quality that I'm looking for. Like if it's not, if there's no smell to it, I don't want it. If it, the trim job is mangled, I don't want it. If the cultivar name on it is like a big question mark or it's just called like Bob's feet and I've never heard of it before, I probably don't want that either. Um, so yeah, it, I, I recognize it's, it's not an easy place to be, especially producing craft and, and expecting people to like pony up the money for it. But you know what? The black market managed to do it 
just fine. And yes. as someone who hand trimmed for years in Humboldt County, we did it. They ponied up the dough. We sat there. I mean, heck, they used to pay for all our meals too. So it was like a kind of a pretty luxe job in some ways. Um, and granted, the black market made more for being in the black market than the legal industry does being legal, but it was possible. And one mm -hmm. of my first connoisseur gigs was as a trimmer being asked to try three different blue strains and identify the flavors so that the grower could market it to some of the dispensaries. And so having to do these little write-ups, you know, was as simple as um, paying me I think in weed um, to just sit there, smoke it and tell them what flavors I was experiencing and what smells there were and the difference between a blue dream and a blue fire and like, I don't know, a blue cookie. You know what I mean? Like three yes. different, the same, but so different. Yeah. Um, and that was part of the job. Part of the job was saying, this is what makes these different. Um, and so when are we going to see more of these types of jobs popping up in the legal industry? Because I know a lot of really amazing butt tenders that could definitely write you a killer description of your flavors outside of scientific testing. And maybe that could be fun too, because I don't think the average, I love seeing terpenes listed on packages, but does the average smoker? No, but do they right. want to know what it tastes like? Yes. Yeah. And if you're buying wine, right, the wine description is going to say deep red berries with a hint of sweetness dry on the palate, right? It does not say uh, contains uh, octadonal, uh, hydrophone, wh whatever. Like I'm, I'm just making up uh, molecules that might be in grapes now, grape aroma molecules, because I don't have one at the top of my head. Um, but we're not looking for compounds on the back of a wine label, right? Same thing, same for um, coffee, right? We, we really just want the sensory experience. Absolutely. So, and I, I think bud tenders are really a, a good bud tender is really good at communicating that sort of coffee bag description, right? You're going to get juicy red berry with a peppery nose and the effect is, is mood elevating or mood shifting, right? Great. That that's not the full story, but it's really like enough for me to be be like, oh, this is the experience I'm likely going to get when I get home. Yeah, right. And then you can base your then you have your own experience as well. Yes. I um comparing cannabis uh to perfume in that it is uh both are luxury agricultural commodities and um, that are not too many degrees away from the farm itself. So it's mm -hmm. not mass processed into becoming what it is. Nobody cares about the ingredients in a perfume. They want to know what it smells like. But more than that, what's the vibe? What vibe yeah. am I going to feel from wearing this? Truly, um, yeah. So that's kind of a fun one too. I actually had a really fun week last week. I did a burn and learn with something called the Bud Tenders Association. And I got to go a little further into that, which I think we will probably end up doing on one of these episodes. Mm -hmm. But the idea of telling a story about the aroma or about the flavor is so valuable when it comes to these agricultural luxury items like cannabis because it's all about the vibe and so again as exciting as it will be to see 14 terpenes and all their percentages listed 
I would also be super cool with reading like a fun story about the cold steel of a blade or like the sun beaming on a perfect day, you know, like I want to feel like I'm at the beach. Right. You know, and so <laughs> let's get all the weed nerds together so we can sit down and talk about terpenes for the next year or two. And then we hopefully can help facilitate this shift where, um, this herb is not uh, blue cookies, which which has like a clear lineage that we can go and look back through and have experience with. Um, I think it's okay if they're just selling a vibe, right? Here's like something that's we're going to call like blue gas and you're going to crack into it and it's going to be really pretty and provide this experience for you. And in that case, I'm okay with us losing some of the history and some of the real story behind this, because that will actually get consumers closer to the experience they're looking for if it's done right. It you know, and right. I think we're starting to see that with some edibles. We were just talking beforehand. Um, you're doing a lot of the like cannabis beverages lately. Is that that's right. I am hooked on the cannabis. <laughs> it is uh, an expensive new habit. They are sure. not cheap over here. I bought one the other day. It was only 2.5 milligrams and it was $10 for oh, one. Wow. For one. I gave someone a, a 15 milligram edible the other day and they said, oh, this is too much. And they just took a little, little nibble off of it. And I just thought that's not going to do anything. But hey, maybe that's, that's where their range is. Did you notice any effect from the two and a half? Well, so in Canada, we have a 10 milligram limit on everything. So you cannot buy more than 10 milligrams uh, per item or by volume. So if you want, if, uh, so my favorite sodas are, are called can, they're drink cans. They're really delicious because they have very adult flavors like cardamom orange and lavender lemon, yes. not just like nasty blue flavor. Um, and so they're two milligrams each, but you can only buy five at a time because then you would exceed your 10 milligram limit. So they're quite yeah. strict about that. But lucky for me, I am a heavy smoker, smoke a lot of weed and I'll be fine. But those edibles hit hard. They, a two milligram edible had me on my couch all afternoon. I could not get Perfect. up. It was done, which is Totally the vibe I was going for. Um, I know the average person wouldn't uh, have <laughs> such an intense effect from an edible, but yeah, they hit hard. But was it worth $10? That's like minimum wage is a little higher here, um, but that's like still like almost an hour of work uh, at minimum wage for one sodi. And, you know, having worked in weed for so many years, it's very rare that I actually have to um, purchase it because so many friends work in the industry. So, you know, you're often gifted lots of cannabis. Anyway, it's, uh, what am I saying? I loved it as usual, but I thought it was a little overpriced considering how little weed was actually in it. Um, but they're good. Yeah, I'm hooked on the bevies. I, I think that's great. Uh, and, and so I think that's also a really good example of like, hey, this is the experience you were expecting and you got it the flavor was what it said on the package. Like I, I really just want our flower to reach that level. You know what I mean? And if it comes from a craft producer who can give me like a, a thorough lineage and a terpene report, like, great, you got me as a consumer, but 
really, if we could just go in and stop having so much like mislabeled trash. And um, here we have a lot of really low quality edibles because people thought like, oh, hey, there's an oversupply. We've, it, we can basically create this stuff very inexpensively. Um, and so a lot of like weird like Rice Krispie treats kind of hit the market in like less than stellar packaging. And I, I maybe those are just for value mining consumers. That's maybe someone else we're not even necessarily talking to right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was I was a little bummed to see all of these kind of like what look like more gray market, black market edibles actually hitting the shelves here in Oregon. Because for a while, most things that were making it to market um, had reached this kind of level of, of quality that you would expect to find at like a, a higher end grocery store. Right, right. And do you guys have a limit there on on edibles or can it be anything? Uh, so it was 50 milligrams per piece. Um, and then in January, that doubled to 100. Um, so we saw massive reformulations across the board. Almost wow. everyone reformulated their products um, to contain 100 milligrams, which wow. I was surprised. I thought like 50 was a really nice spot for consumers. Um, but now up to 100, I think people just typically do what I do, which is buy the 100 and then go home and like divide it up into the proper dosage for yourself. Um, and then uh, I'm trying to think there's the limits on how many you can buy then. I think it's 16 ounces of not concentrate, but the edibles themselves. So mm-hmm. I could buy a pound of cookies, which would be like 20 cookies or something like that. Okay. Okay. That's kind of weird. A weird way of doing it. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's it's very strange. I've, I've never bought my limit in edibles before, so I couldn't tell you what that is. I'm like you, I, I smoke constantly. Uh, but a real lightweight when it comes to, to an edible, like I'm either going to go to sleep or maybe be sitting there watching a kid's movie. That Those are my two speeds for edibles. Yeah. I just, um, you know, ate a lot of snacks and, um, went to bed early. I, I mean, that, that sounds <laughs> perfect, right? If you went to the dispensary and you said, look, I'm just looking to eat a lot of snacks and go to bed early and they they'll find something for you. Yeah, exactly. So that was a nice time anyway. Beautiful. Um, so I think that we've kind of like hit this topic and kind of talked about our point of view on it. And if you're trying to avoid some of those pitfalls, some of the things you can look at uh, to find a better experience for yourself. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to touch on? Well, hey, this was, you know, our, our first episode. Right. I think so far, so good. Yeah, um, definitely. And this podcast is called The Smoking Spot. Uh, and yeah. we did get some really excellent submissions from fans. Let's call them fans. Yeah, they uh, are. They haven't they hadn't heard the podcast yet, but we have some very enthusiastic uh people in the cannabis community, which I absolutely love. So I received a bunch of really amazing submissions of people's favorite smoking spots. And so I just want to remind everyone that you are encouraged to send us yours, um, your favorite smoking spot, your favorite smoking spot memory, um, because we want to hear it. Everyone has one and I want to hear all about it. Yes. Uh, We're going to throw in all of the Instagram tags and everything. You can reach out to us through any of those channels. 
Um, I will say, as we sat down to record, I got a lovely message from Instagram that they shut down the smoking spot account. Uh, so we're getting that back up. You know, this is some challenges of the industry, right? That that it's still heavily regulated, even in legal areas. Um, so we're just a podcast. We're not trying to slang anything uh, just yet. So go ahead and try and find us there. But also you can reach out to us. Um, I'm at the Lao 100 on Instagram. Amanda, give us your details. Uh, my Instagram is at emerald.temple.living. And of course, you have to type out the whole thing because Instagram hates weed. Yeah, that's that's for both of us. If you can't find us, just type in every single letter we just told yeah. you and our accounts will show up. Exactly. Uh, it's a good thing yeah. that the uh, the cannabis community is looking out because we're, we're not sitting here with like 12 followers. We've each got like robust accounts. Um, they're just a little harder to find. Yeah, exactly. And it is pretty funny that the smoking spot Instagram was shut down within like a day because it only had two followers, you and me. Um, so <laughs> that I know. <laughs> right. And I wasn't trying to like uh, post a bunch of like winky emojis for sales. Um, so uh, but we do want to hear one thing we need more of is questions. Right. We're going to get get the show going. It's going to be out there on like an every other week basis. So we really would love to answer your questions about legal weed, about tasting cannabis, about aroma, taste, any of those things that sound interesting to you. They're definitely interesting to us. Send them our way. We're going to get the questions rolling on the next episode. So, um, yeah, big thank you to everyone who sent in their smoking spot stories. I just want to do a shout out to the people who did. Um, and that was cannabis creator at hippie zorn the buttender extraordinaire at muffin man underscore six nine seven cannabis educator cannababe underscore carry and smoking spot enthusiast mo silverman so thank you guys for sending those in yeah so uh we're gonna throw those in there and we'd love to hear more about your favorite smoking spots this can be back in the day this can be right now in front of your tv whatever you're loving lately. We want to hear about it because that's what this is about. So I'm going to enter insert that here and we can hear about some favorite smoking spots. And uh, and then we'll be back and, and wrap everything up. Hey, smoking spot podcast. Um, this is Hippie. My favorite smoking spot memory would definitely be the old uh, house I used to live in as a kid. I used to have to pop open the window in my bedroom and hang my entire body out the window just for a tiny hit so the parents wouldn't notice. I definitely love smoking laying on my hammock in the backyard. It's so peaceful and I get to enjoy every moment. That's such a hard question because it's like, where am I chilling? Like, what's the vibe of this smoke spot? So one of my favorite smoke spots is actually at my parents' house. Um, out of a bathroom window, you can access the roof. And you sit in a little nook on the roof uh, between a part of the house so you're not seen by anyone. And you just get to look over into the trees of pennsylvania and it's really beautiful in the fall time okay so thanks again for everyone who sent in those submissions please find us on instagram and send us yours because you could be featured on the next 
episode. And thanks so much for tuning in today. Lastly, I want to do a huge shout out to my amazing friend, Austin Warren, who wrote and recorded our podcast theme song. Um, you guys can find him on Instagram at Gator Troubadour, and you can listen to his country blues um, at Gator Troubadour Music bandcamp so thank you austin we love the song yeah check it out uh thanks everyone for joining us today we'll be back in a week or two um get those submissions in get those uh smoking spots sent over to us and uh we'll be back thanks for spending some time with us Smoke it up, hold it down and